I'm astonished myself that I'm appearing in this program, but I uh, certainly have made mistakes. I've made judicial mistakes, I've made personal mistakes, I've made mistakes with my teachers, I've made mistakes with people that I've known well and loved. Everybody makes mistakes, but to identify one in particular is quite difficult because once you start thinking about it, there are so many. just heard doubting this podcast before you've even had a chance to listen to the first episode yet is former High Court Judge Michael Kirby. Maddie, were you, did you really know much about Michael Kirby's background before we did this episode? Because you're not, you know, really from a legal background. No, I didn't actually. Um, I had obviously heard his name and I think I'd seen him speak a few times, but I didn't really know the intricacies of, and I guess the significance of what he'd done in the legal system, um, just because, you know, committees and so on don't mean a lot to me and sort of going back and sort of being the me like oh actually that was really significant he is quite <laughs> important actually so this entire episode we're going to be talking to mr kirby about his greatest mistakes and failures and in case you haven't picked up yet i'm rosalind and this is madeline king and we're going to be your hosts for every episode of fallible the podcast you're listening to right now this is the very first episode welcome each episode, we'll be talking to one person or a few people about some of the biggest mistakes they've made in their lives. And also, I think the things that stick with them, that you might look at them and think that was such a small thing, and yet has still stuck with them despite all of their careers. But that's the rest of the season. For now, we're talking about Michael Kirby. So just to give um, everyone out there a bit of a background, Michael Kirby was the first chairman of the Australian Law Reform Commission. He was also a High Court judge for 13 years. And, and this is one of the things that he's most well known for, he was also the first openly gay High Court judge. So we sat down with him at his offices in Sydney to have a chat about all of those things and so much more. When I was growing up, I discovered that I was gay. You discover that sort of gradually because it comes upon you about the age of 11. The hormones are to blame. They make you aware of sexuality and therefore you begin to face up to your life. I had to make a big choice. Would I be open about it or would I go into the closet as the Americans call it and keep it all to myself. In fact in those days we're talking about 1951 there was no real choice the criminal laws were targeted at gay people they imposed very serious criminal punishments even for adult consensual private conduct and because of that most people kept their sexuality to themselves. 
the biggest burden that was presented was not actually the law, but your concern that you would hurt your family, make your family ashamed of you, make your brothers and sister, in my case, ashamed of me, whereas I wanted them to be proud of me because I was doing so well at school and I was helping them with their homework, which was the role of the eldest brother. I decided to exercise caution. I therefore kept it all to myself. And that's a very hard thing for a young person to do, not to be honest and candid with your loved ones, with the people who are most important in your life. But because I imagined that I was doing this for their sakes, as well as my own, I went along with what society required of me. That was, don't ask, don't tell. And I played that game for a very long time. How were you aware at that age that it wasn't okay to be gay? Well, you couldn't escape the afternoon newspapers with their headlines of prominent people who were being entrapped and denounced in the tabloid newspapers. Therefore, even at the age of 11, if you were an intelligent young person, you knew that this was not a good trip and that you had to be very um, circumspect about who you would tell. It wasn't a secret, it was denunciation and horror. The laws on the subject didn't really change in New South Wales until 1976 may even have been a little later, but the social attitudes remained long after the change of the laws. And I was not really challenged on the decision that I made. I just went ahead with my life. In the times that I was at university, it was quite a lonely period, but I solved that by getting involved in student politics. Looking back, I think there were quite a lot of gay people involved, and I wonder why. But uh, I became the king of the committees. I chaired thousands of committees. I became very good at it. Did it change your behaviour as a young lawyer? Did you ever bump into someone else at a, a gay bar or something and have to run in the other direction? When I was at law school, I was uh, president of the Students' Law Society, and at that time, uh, and maybe even today, you couldn't go with a same-sex partner. Therefore, I would go with a friend whom I like very much, but not sexually. And she, I think, may have known about my sexual orientation, but maybe not. So did it make me change behaviour? Yes. Basically, it made me a non-sexual being from 
the age of 11 to about the age of uh, 28. And that is a consequence that I now, looking back, deeply resent. Because at the time in your life when that part of your personality is most important, you were required to be non-sexual, and I was. However, then in 1969, I made what was definitely not a mistake. I met my partner, Johan, and we have been together ever since, uh, 46 years. And that has been a great blessing in my life. 11 February 1969 was the day on which I met Johan. We both remember it very well. So, Rosalyn, have you heard the story of how Johan and Michael met? <laughs> See, it's funny. I have because we actually did a ton of research for this program and by now yeah, I've heard this okay. story about 50 million okay. times. But, okay, for the sake of the narrative, why no, Maddie? I have not heard this story. Well, it was a boiling hot summer's day. Michael decides to chuck on a bite orange jumper for reasons best known to him <laughs> and head to the pub and have a chat, have a drink. And he sees a cute guy standing at the bar who is Johan, his future partner. Mm. He goes up and he thinks he hears an accent and he thinks it's German. And so Michael thinks, I know a bit of German. I'm going to ask him about this book I've recently been reading about one of the Nazi foreign ministers, which is a really interesting pickup line. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that before. I think that is the first time I've ever heard that. Even more interesting given the fact that Johan is dumped. <sighs> <laughs> and I love that he did this wearing a bright orange fuzzy jumper. Who knows? Mm. However, they kept talking for the rest of the night and they have stayed together ever since. When HIV came along, which was in 1984 or 5, and became known in Australia, I had to make another choice. Would I keep out of engagement with the epidemic, even though I felt I had perhaps some things to offer, because being involved in it was like code language for indicating your sexual orientation? Mm. Or would I get involved? My partner, Jan, was very clear about this. He said that we had to do what we could. Our friends were dying around us. We were going to many funerals. Uh, it was a very grim time.
So for those of you who don't know, that was the famous Scream Reaper ad that came out in 1987. It was really a watershed moment in public awareness about the AIDS epidemic and puts into perspective why this was so important in Michael's life back then. Therefore, we did various things for the AIDS epidemic. Johan became an Ankali. The Ankali movement is a kind of buddy movement. People who want to voluntarily give their time to support somebody who is living with HIV. That can involve cleaning their house, making some meals, having a dinner with them, but most importantly, conversing with them. Many of them were alone, frightened and very sick. Johan became an Ankali. I became his handbag to go along and have dinner with his clients. I also myself started to get involved. Prudence might have suggested that I should continue with the closet. But Johan's example and his encouragement led me to get involved with uh, the AIDS epidemic, both nationally and internationally. The great Jonathan Mann came out to Australia. He was a charismatic person who was leading the work of the global program on AIDS of the World Health Organization. He asked me to become involved in the Global Commission on AIDS of the World Health Organization. I agreed. And so from about the mid-1980s, I was in the process of reversing my mistake. And I was getting more and more involved with the epidemic. In comparison to the deaths that we knew of, my little secret didn't really seem all that important. I really did feel this was an important moral obligation and always I had Johan's example before me. In February 1996, Michael Kirby was appointed to the High Court of Australia. He's talked before about the moment that he found out about his appointment. He was in a committee meeting, which also included his brother, Donald. An associate came in and handed a yellow post-it note to another committee member. The post-it note was passed, hand to hand, down the committee table to Michael. It contained a short scribble telling him to ring the Attorney General. Donald said later the colour just drained from Michael's face. Even at that stage, I was not publicly open about my sexual orientation. I used to go to Canberra with my partner, Jan, and he began badgering me to be more open about my sexual orientation. On one occasion, he said to me, how long do you think 
you are going to be in public life. We owe it to younger people who are coming along to be a good example, an example of honesty and an example against the medieval hobgoblins that occupy some people's minds concerning minority sexual orientation. I said to him, oh, don't you think we should leave this until after I've left the court? Don't you think it would be prudent to leave this in abeyance? After all, people can work it out if they want to, and having you with me in Canberra is going to get around. Did you ever feel guilty about all of those years that you were in public life and Johan was not being mentioned in speeches? I think the only time you mentioned him by name was when you, it was your farewell speech from the High Court. Did I feel guilty? Yes, I think I did, because my natural inclination is to be honest. And when I had the um, welcome ceremony in the High Court, which is in 1996, before the glorious entry in 1999, I said that I wanted to thank my loved ones and my sister-in-law, Judith, gave Jan a big dig in the ribs and said, you're on. Uh, but when I had my farewell in the High Court of Australia in 2009, I at last paid a full tribute to his role in my public and private life. And there is no doubt that having a partner is very good for your mental and physical health and also for your happiness and your sexual happiness and therefore it took a long time but ultimately I got there. I came to the view that what had begun as a little mistake uh, back in 1951 had become a burden and that it was wrong and that the advice that Johan was giving me was correct advice. Therefore, I decided on a very sophisticated way of announcing my mistake. I negotiated with the editor of Who's Who in Australia to insert the letter P for partner. Until 1998, the Australian editions of Who's Who had M for married, but they didn't have the initial P for partner. This was so even for straight people who had a partner, they didn't believe in having P. I negotiated and said, if you insert the P, I will give you my P and my P was Johan. And so in the glorious 1999 edition of Who's Who in Australia, in the overlong entry of my illustrious career was the little note P, Johan Anton van Floten, 11 February 1969.
media then fell upon the edition. The Canberra Times issued an editorial which was headed, The Non-Secret is Out. But some commentators, such as Piers Ackerman in the Daily Telegraph, wrote a critical editorial suggesting that I had been dishonest and misleading and uh, mocking the step that we had taken. Even in 1999, there were still people who were hostile. Even today, there are people who are hostile to gay Australians. So looking back on my life, can it be said that my decision in 1951, which accorded with the culture of our country at that time, was indeed a mistake? In retrospect, to me, it seems to be so. But looking at the realities of the life that unfolded afterwards, it has to be said that if I had been honest about my sexual orientation back in 1951, I would not have made progress in the legal profession as it was at that time. I would not have been appointed to the Arbitration Commission in 1975. I would not have been appointed to the Law Reform Commission the same year. I would not have been appointed to the Federal Court in 1983. I would not have been appointed to the Court of Appeal in 1984. And I don't think I would have been appointed to the High Court of Australia in 1995. The reason for that is that People in those years knew that there were gays, but they required of you that you go along with the pretense that human sexual orientation is binary. Well, it's not binary. I knew it was not binary. I knew it was not binary by the latest 1953, when Alfred Kinsey's research became known. But in my life, it seemed wisest to go along with what society required and the question still hangs in the air if I hadn't would I have had the life I have had. When my mother was very ill and dying I felt uncomfortable about the fact that I had never verbalized my sexual orientation to her. I had to my father and to my brothers and sister, but something held me back from confronting the issue with my mother, to whom I was very close. So when she was very ill and a week before she died, I said to her, Mum, I have something I have to tell you. I am gay and I should have told you this long ago. My mother looked at me with her lovely eyes and she said, Michael, you have been bringing Johan here every Sunday for 30 years, do you think I came down in the last shower? Uh, therefore, 
that was a kind of blessing from her that she knew I had simply been conforming to what society required. That made me feel better. So there is my big, glorious mistake, but positive mistake. And that depends on whether the question is being asked by a hard-nosed lawyer in Australia in 1975, or by somebody at the pearly gates when ultimately I turn up and make my application, the most important application in my life or should I say, in my death. So at the end of the interview, we were milling around, chatting about things, looking at all these pictures of the Queen that Michael has in his office. Maddie was taking a few photographs of us, which is the clicky sound that you can hear in the background. Michael has taken photographs every day of his life, and I was specifically asking him about that hobby, when he said something that surprised me. I was saying to Jan the other night that in times to come, I may be completely forgotten as a judge and even as a UN official, but remembered for my photographs. I have photographs of the whole history of the AIDS epidemic right to the beginning. And I have photographs of the history of the, of the Human Genome Project right to the beginning. And similarly in Cambodia, North Korea exercise, but back uh, the scenes in the High Court and in the Court of Appeal and in the Federal Court years and years ago uh, of informal photographs with judges uh, showing them as human beings and showing their associates, some of whom have gone on to become the judges. Uh, all of that is now being digitised by the National Archives of Australia and I reckon in the future that is going to be what I am remembered for. Why don't you have an exhibition of it, put on a big show? That is a very good idea. You should, you really <laughs> should. So that was it, that was the first episode of Fallible. How do you feel like that one? I think we're pretty well. I think it went well too. I think we're doing good. Yeah, I think we are too. <laughs> Not to just big note ourselves, but, you know, we too are fallible, so there'll be more stuff coming up. Thanks for listening to the first episode. Um, we really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard or have any feedback or even if you have a mistake you'd love to tell us about, please email us, um, fallablepodcast at gmail.com. You can also go on to our website, which is www.fallablepodcast.com, and that's got a whole bunch of information um, about Michael Kirby and just about the podcast um, and the photos that I was noisily taking in the background of the podcast. <laughs> so we also have a whole series of interesting, exciting and mistake-ridden episodes coming up. And just to give you a bit of a teaser, we'll be talking to um, politicians, Vietnam War veterans, artists, writers, comedians... And also people who are less in the public eye but have interesting and funny and weird riveting stories about failure themselves. We do also have a Twitter account at Fallible Podcast. So if you want to follow our daily tweetings or tweet us, that's where you can find us. 
Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. See you next time.